If anyone thought that the pain of a heart attack and being in a room with beeping machinery would stop the 49-year-old Stephen Sondheim, they were beyond wrong. Be it arrogance or stubbornness, Sondheim just decided not to die. Or at least it seemed that way. He had always considered himself a bit of a hypochondriac, but no one else showed much concern, so he was clearly fine, he thought. But then... He called Hal Prince and his wife Judy, and the pair rightly flipped out and came running to his bedside. Stephen considered it a slight overreaction. Now, in her biography, Sondheim, a life, Meryl Seacrest, said the pair continued to linger around his room. Sondheim told Seacrest that Hal Prince was a workaholic and somehow didn't seem to think death was real, so the fact that he was showing concern for Sondheim gave him a laugh. Perhaps how Prince was figuring out that death was an actual consequence of living. Sondheim had been a lover of eggs, meat, and cheese, but he decided to cut back a bit and began taking better care of himself. He would bike around the city, something New Yorkers will tell you might be more dangerous than a heart attack. He started eating more vegetables and fruits and got right back to work, because that's just what Stephen Sondheim did. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Stephen Sondheim, Episode 3 Despite trying to heal, Sondheim casually worked on a few smaller projects, a cabaret with unheard songs and a few ideas here and there. But soon, Sondheim decided to try something bigger. And that was a musical adaptation of Merrily We Roll Along, a play by George Kaufman and Moss Hart. The story, told in reverse order, regards the life of a pretentious playwright named Richard Niles, who is going through something of an existential crisis, and the audience watches his successes and epic failures. At the time it came out, many people weren't ready for such a heavy think piece. It was cynical. And it was 1934. It's safe to assume that people were already depressed enough. But with the success of Sweeney Todd, Sondheim decided to take the gamble. Merrily, we roll along centers on a trio of friends and begins in 1976 and, like the play, tells the story in reverse. The character of Franklin Shepard is a composer who has given up his career on Broadway, abandoned his friends, and moved to Hollywood. The show ends in 1957. The original stage play started in the 30s and reversed back to 1916, so a lot had to change in between. But the script coming together took time, and as they started rehearsals, in truth, a lot of the show remained unfinished. Well, the idea was good, they thought. The roughness of the very green actors, they thought, was great. Critics say the music was pretty darn good, but it deviated a lot from what Sondheim had done in recent years. The vast majority of the blame seemed to lie with the staging and book itself. The show's actors had to be believable as both being teenagers and adults, something that involved not only makeup, but a fat suit. It just never clicked for audiences. The show was immediately pummeled by critics. One article callously titling the review, Not So Merrily They Roll Out of the Theater. One critic even insultingly wrote, As we all should probably have learned by now, to be a Stephen Sondheim fan is to have one's heart broken at regular intervals. People were leaving the theater. And then people began pointing fingers at each other. Now, normally, Sondheim remembered that Hal Prince and his wife Judy would wait around at the opening cast party until the papers with reviews came out. But 
They left. That's how he knew the show had failed. Most people who do the show, and many do still try to revive and restage it, say the problem is just that the story is one limited by the confines of theater. Stephen didn't want pity, but he was sorely disappointed. The other blow came in the form of an opening night card, which read only, Mom. Merrily we roll along, closed, after 16 performances. Sondheim was notoriously sensitive to criticism, and there was a lot. He delivered a blow to Arthur Lawrence, who had made unfavorable remarks about Merrily, to which Sondheim replied, If one is a friend, one doesn't undermine it from the beginning. The failure of Merrily also brought Sondheim and Hal Prince's partnership to an end. It was devastating for both, and Sondheim was frankly surprised. He thought there was still hope for Merrily. Strangely, the end of his partnership with Prince and an attempt of another person to revive Merrily would bring Sondheim back to his A-game. James Lapine in 1985 staged a production of Merrily at La Jolla Playhouse and it worked. Lapine cast more age-appropriate actors, older and more experienced, and he asked Sondheim for new songs. He also convinced Sondheim and book writer George Firth to add a scene that had been taken out of the original version. The failure of Merrily would be one of the events that would lead Sondheim to this man, Lapine, who would be his next great partner. Sondheim was in his 50s, and New York's Broadway scene was being dominated by one man. In sort of a new British invasion, Andrew Lloyd Webber was everywhere. Cats, Jesus Christ Superstar, Evita, and now Sondheim walked around in the city feeling more and more like a failure. Weber was the king of Broadway now, and though I often joke about their rivalry, Weber always praised Sondheim. Following Sondheim's death, Andrew told a British newspaper that he thinks that many people will continue to focus on his lyrics because they are peerless, but as a composer, Andrew felt that his work was just extraordinary. He was an absolute genius, he said. But at the time, Sondheim and the rest of Broadway were seeing that Weber was the only person whose shows were actually making any money. Maybe it was time to quit. Maybe Sondheim didn't know. Weber's music was the complete antithesis to Sondheim's. Combining operatic voices, belting and screaming guitars, and on the other hand, the theater world was just suffering as a whole. In the 80s, ticket sales had dropped. It was also becoming more expensive to even produce shows. His friends noted his depression and cynicism, constantly living as though the other shoe would drop or being certain that it was all over for him. He was drinking more. But it would be James Lapine who would coax him out of the dark. Lapine was in his 30s and Sondheim in his 50s. To be frank, Lapine found Sondheim pretty grumpy and irritable at first, snipping at the idea that he would ever compromise his art for the sake of something commercial on the level of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Jealousy. The cheesier Golden Age musicals just weren't going to be a thing anymore in the 80s, and Sondheim was searching for something. Art is finicky. What works once may not work a second time, so you keep throwing things at the wall and hoping they stick. Sondheim loved the technical aspect of art, something he'd picked up from Milton Babbitt, and together, Lapine and Stephen decided to start from scratch using a theme, building a musical around a piece of art. 
The piece of art, a Sunday afternoon on the island of Grand Jatte by Georges Seurat, was a painting that fascinated James Lapine as a young boy. He was always fascinated by the people, just captured going about a calm and sunny day. And thus, Sunday in the Park with George was born of this new partnership. James loved the characters in the painting, but it was Sondheim himself who noticed the missing main character, George himself. At its heart, even though the show is a fictionalized account of George's life in Act One, and later in a time jump, the show is about the creative process and how difficult it is to remain relevant. Personally, and I'm not unique in this, my favorite song in the show is Move On. With the character of Dot, the woman with the hat in Seurat's painting, and in his show, his lover, giving advice on how to continue to create. If Shakespeare took, if there be nothing new but that which is from the Bible or from some other idiom, Sondheim also at some point realized that there is nothing new under the sun. And thus, an anthem for artist was born. Stop worrying where you're going. Move on. If you can know where you're going, you've gone. You have to move on. Keep going. Keep creating. Others may not like what you're doing. These were lessons Sondheim had been given by every mentor and every partner, and the words feel intimate. Georges Seurat died incredibly young, and Sondheim dove into his life story. And he began to realize that visual art and music had a lot in common. Composition, light, and bringing order to the whole. Lapine and Sondheim, despite their age gap, both worked quickly and passionately and loudly, probably to the annoyance of Stephen's neighbor, Catherine Hepburn. Don't worry, don't worry, there are more Catherine Hepburn stories coming in this episode. Lapine and Sondheim worked with a smaller budget, as was the way of the 1980s. There was no money. Sondheim's last show had flopped, and they were working off-Broadway in a theater with 150 seats. It was a process. In a New York Times article cleverly titled Sunday in the Trenches with George, author Jesse Green cites Lapine's version of how a very abstract musical turned into a classic. You had Lapine, who was into experimental theater, and Sondheim, who had been trained by the man responsible for Oklahoma. You also have very strange elements in things like time jumps between Act 1 and Act 2, as well as the fact that it's about a pointillist artist. And theater producers were frankly concerned that Sondheim wasn't commercially viable anymore. Why the hell would anyone want to see a play about a dead French artist? Other problems started to arise, besides the money. Bernadette Peters, who was playing Dot, had a stalker calling the theater... But she mostly appeared to be unbothered by it. Mandy Patinkin, playing George, was stressed and overwhelmed and stormed out of rehearsals a couple times. Lapine was quite green and still learning, and the actors would correct his stage directions or fight back, and Sondheim remained exhausted. It was beginning to feel reminiscent of the issues that plagued anyone can whistle. But an unfinished version opened at the Schubert Theater, and to everyone's surprise, it was loved. As the show headed back to New York, it was still missing two songs. One of those would be Finishing the Hat, likely one of the most famous moments in the entire show. The first time it happened, Mandy Patinkin had to sing the song with the libretto because he hadn't had the time to memorize it. 
Much like Move On, Finishing the Hat was a song all about creation. Creating something new where nothing had existed before. In his book of the same title, Finishing the Hat, Sondheim wrote about songwriting. Some songs, of course, are small scenes in themselves. I've been asked many times why I don't write the books for my musicals since I treat lyrics as short plays whenever I can. Yeah, but the key word in that sentence is short. I'm by nature a playwright, but without the necessary basic skill, the ability to tell a story that holds an audience's attention for more than a few minutes. Sondheim frequently lamented that he was no longer the kind of composer that people wanted to see, it seemed, but somewhere in that self-pity, as tempers flared, the show opened on Broadway on May 2nd. It got mixed reviews, but won two Tony Awards after being nominated for 10. It ran for 604 performances, and it won the Pulitzer. At that time, it was only the sixth musical to do so. Sondheim did not have to try to match Weber. He just had to be Sondheim. Anything you do, let it come from you. Then it will be new. He had lost partners and friends, and somehow here he was, back again, after thinking he was done, and his renaissance was not yet over. To start Sunday in the Park with George Off-Broadway actually allowed for more freedom and risk, but the move ultimately placed Sondheim back into the spotlight of the Great White Way. Some of his work, West Side Story and Pacific Overtures, were both having revivals. Sondheim decided to take the time to look for a home in the country, despite his love of his Manhattan apartment. He had a right-hand houseman in Louis Vargas who took care of everything for Sondheim in terms of running his household. Louis was not interested initially in being Sondheim's Manhattan housekeeper until Sondheim finally told him who his neighbor was. Catherine Hepburn. Louis signed up right away. And despite Catherine and Sondheim's neighborly feud, Kate and Louis actually became fast friends. She would bring him vegetables and fruit from her garden. Louis would tragically die of AIDS in 1993. Sondheim had assistance, but he was surprisingly accessible to many people. He was notorious for answering letters, and over the years they've been catalogued. Most recently, one written in 1990 appeared in a collection that was posted to Instagram. It was a letter of recommendation on behalf of a young man who had once written him while in college. To whom it may concern. This is to recommend most highly Jonathan Larson an extremely talented composer and lyricist. He deserves every support he can be given. Yours sincerely, Stephen Sondheim. That's Jonathan Larson who wrote Brent, by the way. (laughs) He had written to Sondheim while he was a college student working on multiple pieces, and Sondheim gave notes and encouragement when he could. He loved being a teacher. It's a sacred profession, he told his biographer. Lapine and Sondheim began plotting something new after Lapine's restaging of Merrily We Roll Along. They toyed with the idea of creating a new fairy tale, but it turns out every fable seems to have been created already. The pair pitched around ideas. Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, Hansel and Gretel. There were Disney fairy tales, though, that they had both seen, and then there were actual fairy tales, you know, with Prince's eyes getting gouged out and stepsisters getting their toes cut off to fit into a smaller shoe. And Sondheim found those much more funny. Using the old English pantomime shows as an inspiration and adding two original characters, they decided to weave a new fairy tale in an alternate universe. 
A baker and his wife want to have a child, but as it turns out, the witch next door, who your host personally has always speculated may have been based on Catherine Hepburn, but I have no way to prove that. Anyway, she's placed a curse on them. Infertility. The baker's father, you see, had snuck into the witch's garden to steal some greens for his pregnant wife, who was craving them. But he selfishly took some beans, beans that contained magic, and as punishment for losing those beans, the witch was cursed to be hideous. As such, she stole the child who she named Rapunzel. You know the drill. But she offers to lift the curse if the baker goes and fetches her some items, and if you've done the show... Feel free to repeat along with me. A cow as white as milk, a cape as red as blood, the hair as yellow as corn, and the slipper as pure as gold. And what starts as a quest for items turns into fairy tale bedlam as the characters try to figure out how to get exactly what they want, if they do know what they want. Cinderella isn't sure she wants a prince, Little Red Riding Hood strays from a path, and Jack manages to anger a giant, which... Seems kind of justifiable in retrospect because he did kill her husband. The confusion comes to an end at the end of Act 1, which ends with happily ever after. And Some audience members have left during the intermission of the show, occasionally thinking it was done. In the initial Broadway run, Sondheim himself would run to the lobby to tell people, wait, 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 wait it's not over yet. Act 2 is where everyone must deal with the consequences of cheating, lying, and stealing to get what they want. And suddenly... The woods becomes a metaphor for life. The items the witch needed were to reverse the ugliness she was cursed with, but in turn, she loses her powers. Cinderella is now a princess, but finds herself restless. Jack's consistent kleptomania has resulted in a giant running through the kingdom, and the baker's wife, who has always wanted romance and excitement, finds it very briefly during a tryst with Cinderella's prince, but unfortunately for her, she becomes lost and falls to her death trying to flee from the giant, leaving a confused and grieving baker alone with a child he has no idea how to raise. Act two is not so happily ever after. Audiences became stunned. Major characters were being killed off left and right, and a morally gray witch begins pointing out how selfish the four remaining characters were. You had to get your prince, had to get your cow, had to get your wish... Didn't matter how, anyway, it doesn't matter now. Most of the feedback was people telling them that the show was going too dark, but Sondheim and Lapine had noticed a theme repeating that may have been completely subconscious. The children were following the selfish actions of their parents, or they lost their parents and had lost their metaphorical way on the path. Cinderella, who lost her mother, suddenly comes into the care of three children, Little Red Riding Hood, Jack, and the baker's child. The baker, as his father before, leaves because as he famously talks about his dead wife, I depended on her for everything. Sondheim's father had abandoned their family when he was a tender 10 years old, and there were so many unsaid things, and that anger turns into one of the most pivotal moments in the show, a confrontation between the baker and the apparition of his dead father. And so ensues this angry confrontation that Sondheim likely never got to have with his own father. No more riddles. No more jests. No more curses you can undo. Left by fathers you never knew. No more quests. No more feelings. 
time to shut the door, just no more. There's catharsis as the apparition of the baker's father points out that he is making the same mistake that he did, ending his appearance with a haunting cliché, like father, like son. Sondheim has often said he doesn't like to hear his own work, but the first time he heard the song on stage, he cried. Sondheim had told his biographer that his father had left him in the lion's den with his mother, and it was wrenching. He had to shut down those emotions to survive, just no more. Into the Woods won the 1988 Drama Desk Best Musical, but lost out at the Tony Awards to our villain, I mean, our antagonist, Okay, I will stop being mean. To Andrew Lloyd Webber and Phantom of the Opera. Now, Joanna Gleason did deservedly win a Tony for Best Actress for her performance as the baker's wife. And the show is Sondheim's most performed. In instructional videos for the licensing company Music Theater International, Sondheim jokes about the criticism one particular song received. No one is alone. Is something of a lullaby to comfort Little Red Riding Hood and Jack, but a few critics pointed out that we are all, in fact, alone. Sondheim brushed that off. It was a note of hope. We do all walk alone on this path, he writes, but along the way, you'll find somebody else. Sometimes people leave you Halfway through the wood Do not let it grieve you no one leaves for good. After Into the Woods gave Sondheim more financial security, he dipped a toe in Hollywood to write a song for Madonna in the film Dick Tracy, sooner or later. And he traveled around giving lectures, and he knew, despite the tough criticisms in the past, he now had a little more liberty to play around with his art form. So when he went back to Playwright Horizons, where he had staged Sunday in the Park with George, he announced loudly, I'm going to write a musical about assassinations. The idea came as Sondheim perused scripts and found one by a young gentleman named Charles Gilbert about a Vietnam veteran who wanted to assassinate the president. Now, Gilbert's format would not have worked for a musical, and Sondheim did not want to use a fictional incident, but nevertheless, he got permission to use the inspiration and got to work on a show that, once most backers found out what it was about, had them backing away slowly. An upbeat opening number by the people who assassinated or tried to assassinate political leaders? Everybody's got the right to be happy? The sound was very Americana with Sondheim channeling suicide and bluegrass, and the book was by John Weedman, but it didn't run very long. However... It's become something of a cult favorite, Assassins. It's been revived, and most famously, I think, the revival with Neil Patrick Harris as Lee Harvey Oswald is the most well-known. The inappropriateness of the theme had some clutching their pearls, but those who knew Sondheim's work were not surprised at all. He was not justifying the actions of the individuals. He was simply telling their point of view. They thought they were right. And the show ends with other assassins cheering on Oswald to pull the trigger. It was polarizing. And a lot of the tickets were sold to Sondheim's friends. But most importantly, he noted, Catherine Hepburn loved it. Speaking of Catherine Hepburn, at some point in the 1990s, she came to a friend's Connecticut home carrying a red potted plant. She was shooting something, an interview or photo spread. 
Her assistant asked her what she was doing with a pot of red flowers, to which she allegedly said, oh, I just stole these off Stephen's deck. Her assistant snapped a photo of Catherine carrying the plant, and Sondheim would always crack himself up telling the story. She did return the flowers, but was caught again sometime later, stealing more flowers by one of his assistants. What are you doing, Catherine? And the much older and more feeble Hepburn jumped off of his deck, waving them off and saying, oh, don't worry, I'll bring them back. She did. Catherine Hepburn would pass away in 2003 at the age of 96, and even if they argued, Sondheim had great respect for her and the feeling was mutual. For as polarizing as Assassins was, Sondheim's name was now attached to a series of hits and game-changers. But he seemed lonely. His homosexuality was no longer a secret, but he lost friend after friend to AIDS, including Broadway choreographer and close friend Michael Bennett. Actress Lee Rimmick, who Sondheim had tried to have a relationship with, passed from kidney cancer. As previously mentioned, he would lose his friend and housekeeper Louie, his half-brother Herbie, and Dorothy Hammerstein, all in rapid succession. He seemed terribly lonely, and then suddenly... He met Peter. Peter Jones wanted to become Sondheim's pupil, and he was a poor, straight-out-of-college dramatist, but an afternoon of talking led to something else, the pair becoming inseparable, first as friends and then lovers. After Sondheim took a nasty fall, Peter helped nurse him back to health and eased his disappointment as Sondheim's assassins closed on Broadway. This led to passion. I would almost argue that passion is more polarizing than assassins, but Sondheim loved the piece and would argue bitterly if someone criticized it. The play, based on Torrescola's Italian film Passion de Amore, is the story of an officer who has a married lover, but finds himself the object of affection of a manic woman named Fosca, the sister of his superior officer. Now, Fosca is not beautiful, but she is complex and strangely obsessed with Giorgio. The play is melodrama, and Fosca is manipulative, and the characters are pretty unlikable. The play and the film both have an issue. Passion de Amore was based on a novel that was never finished, at least not by the original author. The scene in which Giorgio realizes that he does love Fosca was never completed. The author's friend actually wrote it. Meryl Seacrest's biography hints at Sondheim's connection to the material, implying that Peter never realized how much Sondheim really cared about him. Stephen was quite often reserved in his affection, but in truth, he was incredibly emotional. Sondheim would get lost in his work, and Peter would feel neglected, and as he decided to give Stephen space, Sondheim finally broke down to tell Peter how much he loved him, and the two exchanged wedding rings on January 15, 1994. They would separate five years later. Passion wouldn't run for long. People found Fosca deplorable, and that was not Sondheim's intent. The criticism broke his heart. As his friends, including author Lawrence, gave him feedback, he would shush them. There was laughter during dramatic moments. It was devastating. Sondheim was in love, and he was writing about love for the first time, knowing what it felt like. When he wrote Company, he had to ask all of his friends what marriage was like because he didn't know. Lawrence told Sondheim to no longer ask him his opinions on anything because he cared about him too much to lie. Time and, and restaging has been kinder to Passion, but at the time the reviews were mixed. Some were surprisingly good. It had been an emotional roller coaster for all involved, but it was getting hard to succeed on Broadway when Disney showed up with Beauty and the Beast, and 
Despite the odds, Passion performed respectfully well at the Tonys. In the winter of his life, Sondheim was still being a teacher, once having a lecture crashed by Elaine Stritch, who he ran off out of the hall, yelling, That woman! There were tributes and revival after revival, and he worked with vocalists and composers, and sadly his relationship ended with Peter, but life continued. As Sondheim worked to help write some music for the movie The Birdcage, a fire broke out in his home. His newest housekeeper, Andrea, who was in bed weak from AIDS, had to be rescued, and Max, his poor poodle, died of smoke inhalation. Not to mention that many documents were destroyed. This was a devastating time in Steve's life, but a fireman had managed to save Steve's piano. When West Side Story was revived in 2009, a young up-and-coming composer was asked to translate some of the lyrics into Spanish. And this composer, of course, jumped at the chance. And his name was Lin-Manuel Miranda, fresh off his premiere of In the Heights, heading straight into Hamilton. He had framed an email he had gotten from Sondheim and continued to send him scripts and asking for feedback, which Sondheim did always. Lin, in an interview with Broadway.com, joked about how he, as a child, kept watching Into the Woods every time it was on PBS. But as he grew older, he kept hearing people talking about a song called Children Will Listen. Annoyed, he kept correcting people. There is no song called Children Will Listen in Into the Woods. Finally, someone yelled out, Lynn, it's in Act 2. Lynn stopped in his tracks. He had never realized that there was a second act at all. He did eventually watch it and did eventually work with his idol, and Sondheim gave Lynn feedback on Hamilton, just as he gave Jonathan Larson feedback on his work. And eventually the time came for Sondheim to watch most of his major works be turned into movies. Now, he professed that his favorite film adaptation was Tim Burton's Sweeney Todd. Patty Lapone, who played Mrs. Lovett in a revival, told him she didn't like it. Stephen wrote Patty a letter basically telling her she didn't like it because she wasn't in it and she was already determined to hate it. No one in theater ever tells Patty Lapone what to do, save for maybe Sondheim. The two fought a lot but worked well together. And very recently, Steven Spielberg decided to take the bold step to remake West Side Story. He loved the score, but felt like the old movie was too ambiguous. But with Jerome Robbins gone, Spielberg went to Sondheim for a blessing to alter the book. Not dramatically, but to give the rivalry more context, more xenophobia. And Sondheim was fine with it, being no stranger to rewriting things constantly himself. Spielberg brought in Tony Award-winning playwright Tony Kushner to adapt the original book. Kushner said he was stunned when speaking with Sondheim, who kept talking about how terrible the music was. He couldn't believe he was serious, but he was. Stephen kept saying, oh, these weren't my best lyrics. I disagree, said Kushner. Sondheim was working on something new alongside David Ives, but he never really divulged what it was. And, and as Broadway came back, there was now a revival of company. In the middle of November, Sondheim appeared at the theater to watch the show. He looked frail and was wearing a mask, but he stood up and applauded the actors, and apparently he later gave them a few notes as well. A few days later, he was gone. Stephen Sondheim died at the age of 91, leaving behind his husband Jeff, a heartbroken community and a legacy that will continue every time someone whistles or sings one of his tunes. The lights on Broadway dimmed, a group of actors led by a tearful Lynn Manuel Miranda sang Sunday in Times Square. Lynn's movie Tick Tick Boom was nominated for an Oscar, a movie directed by one of Sondheim's mentees, 
about one of his other mentees, Jonathan Larson, well, you know that would have made him proud. And Sondheim's voice makes a brief cameo in the film. And the cast of West Side Story mourned as the film was released. It brings some cold comfort that in death he was still vibrantly present. There's a scene in Into the Woods when the baker runs into the apparition of his dead father. I thought you were dead, the baker asked. In a joking manner, almost mischievous, his father shrugs, not completely. After a pause, he adds, are we ever? And the answer, especially for Stephen Sondheim, is no. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast. Thank you to everyone who donates to our Patreon page. That money goes to books, resources, streaming platforms, and music. Sources for today's episode include Sondheim, Alive by Meryl Seacrest, Finishing the Hat by Stephen Sondheim, Sunday in the Trenches with George, a New York Times piece by Desi Green, Putting It Together by James Lapine, Stephen Sondheim, and the reinvention of the American musical. Join us for a mini-sode in two weeks, and the winner of our TikTok vote for the next topic is President Dwight Eisenhower. Again, thank you so much to everyone who follows us on Facebook, interacts with me on TikTok, or just gives me suggestions and ideas. Come hang out with us. We have a great time over on History Talk and on Facebook. See you next time, friends.